0: any leader that comes, and that's a problem in Germany right now that says, well, in uh, this in the middle of the worst energy crisis we are witnessing in our mm-hmm. lifetime, uh, some leaders saying, I want to close uh, nukes uh, is completely stupid because we are going to lose supply and mm-hmm. lose supply without CO2.
1: Welcome to The Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 060, number 60 of The Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the electricity sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having on the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee during a taxi ride, over dinner, or stuck in an airport departure lounge. This podcast is a hybrid recording with the first section on Zoom and Act 2 in 3D. At Electricity Canada's 2022 Regulatory Forum in early May, which we hold in conjunction with the CAMPUT Conference by the Association of Canadian Regulators, our keynote speaker brought an international perspective to the proceedings. Dr. Thierry a European energy expert, thought leader, commentator, and academic, joined me for a discussion via Zoom prior to the forum, which we played to forum participants and then held a live Q&A. We spoke about the current energy dynamics in Europe and how things are changing rapidly due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how this is complicating decarbonization efforts, the impact on customers, and potential lessons for Canada. We also touch on the potential impact of elections in France, and the Q&A includes a book recommendation. Here is my conversation with Thierry, recorded in early May 2022.
2: Why don't we start with the current situation in Europe that, of course, has been has been certainly very volatile, but can you give us an update from what you're seeing in terms of what the current situation is, and, and also particularly what this means for, for regional energy policy?
0: Yes, thank you, Francis, for having me. The, the situation is evolving extremely fast. I mean, if I just try to sum up what happened in the last month in April. 1st of April, the uh, three Baltic states uh, started to say they were able to do without any Russian gas. So this is not a big deal because this is 2% of the amount of Russian gas from exports to Europe. So completely possible to mitigate this with uh, other uh, extra gas coming from different areas. Uh, Unfortunately, on the 27th of April, Vladimir Putin decided to cut off uh, Poland and Bulgaria, which is another 8%. So in the last month of April, we've lost 10% of our Russian pipe gas supply. And uh, perhaps uh, for your audience to uh, be aware, uh, Russia represents 40% of the total EU gas demand. So it is something we can do. I mean, prices have not spiked so much, but. Uh, there is what I would call a weaponization of gas in this process. This started, I would say, nearly a year ago. And so we have to be prepared for what's going to be the next step. And unfortunately, uh, in the system, uh, there is a systematic risk, uh, which is the fact that because we are too much dependent on Russian gas, if uh, this was to be cut in a uh, Uh, Russian gas to Germany, then Europe will face systemic systemic risk because we are too much dependent. So I think we are at this period right now. As we speak, uh, the energy minister of the 27 member states are meeting and are trying to find ways because you know that the next step is uh, Vladimir Putin requested us to uh, uh, to pay in rubles uh, mm-hmm. the gas we are buying, which is uh, not in the contract. And so the, the question is: Are we going to be united, the whole of Europe, or are some going to be free riders and try to uh, answer Vladimir Putin's request uh, positively?
2: So, what's your what's your best guess on that? Will Europe remain united?
0: It's going to be very difficult. I think Vladimir Putin so far uh, believed that Europe was not going to be united. Uh, Interestingly enough, you know that you, uh, decide an embargo, we need unanimity of member states, and we uh, managed to get it on call. Uh, we are discussing on, on oil and gas, but we manage it, uh, this which I think is a huge first step for Europe. So there's been unanimity. We've, try- mm-hmm. we've tried so far to be united. But again, because there is this risk of systemic uh, failure, I mean, uh, the Germans may uh, be uh, very difficult to convince to try to put an embargo on oil or on gas or may be willing to uh, uh, pay their uh, gas in ruble. So far, they, they said mm-hmm. no. So far, uh, we have a little bit of blur situation in uh, Hungary and in Austria, which may be willing to pay in ruble, which is not uh, what the other countries have status.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, you'd mentioned the the forty percent before the 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 war began. Of Europe's natural gas was coming from Russia. Uh, European countries are are seeking to reduce their dependence by two thirds in 2022. So, what do you think is the potential uh, of this, or, or limitations of specifically of electrification to offset? Uh, this demand for natural gas. So, what what role will electrification play to to try and hit those those significant targets of reducing by two thirds?
0: Well, uh, two thirds is, I would say, uh, wishful thinking from the European Commission, because at okay. the end of the day, what matters to us is the amount of money we send to uh, Russia, because we are sending something like uh, a big. Uh, If if I do the the whole of the coal, the gas and the oil, we are sending uh, to um, Russia something like a billion dollar per day. Uh, for our energy bill. So the idea is to try to reduce this to the maximum and try to make sure that this money doesn't uh, finance the war in Ukraine. Um, the, the limitation is, well, as you know, I mean, you 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 can't do a, a U-turn overnight in an energy mm-hmm. system. It takes quite a long time. And interestingly enough, I've, I've talked to you about the Baltic state, I've talked to you about uh, Poland and Bulgaria. All those five states had... Foreseen this risk and had tried mm-hmm. to address this risk ahead, and they had done some uh, investment: uh, Lithuania with the regas terminal, Poland with the regas mm-hmm. terminal, some with interconnection, uh, some with a new pipe connecting Norway to Poland, going to come out uh, mm-hmm. soon uh, later this year, and one going to connect uh, Greece and uh, Bulgaria. So. Uh, But those pipes are nearly finished because they were decided back a decade ago. So that's Mm -hmm. that's also what I think is very important in this energy uh, situation and in this energy mess. The ones that were able to foresee this and to try to reduce the risk are now in a much better position versus the others that didn't uh, foresee the risk. So I think... Mm -hmm. uh, for an energy transition, we need to plan this well in advance. And what I would also say is magic mask doesn't work. So it's not mm-hmm. because you say it's going to reduce, that things are going to reduce. I mean, you were talking about this reduction of two-thirds. If at the end of the day we manage to uh, get this, which I think is very difficult, but at the end of the day, because in those contracts there are take or pay obligations and we continue to pay for gas that we don't take from the Russian, we have mm-hmm. the worst of two worlds. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we need to look at it really on a contractual basis and really with a decade view. So what do we want to do in uh, the next decade? And you know, uh, as well as me, that if you want to move away from uh, uh, the uh, usual uh, cars to electric vehicles, uh, you need to massively uh, increase the supply of electricity. And uh, this is this means uh, more electricity to be produced. It's, it's not only a question of rare earths, what everybody is talking about. Mm-hmm. Also, it's mm-hmm. a question of, of uh, new electrical plants. I mean, I've I've made this uh, the back of the envelope calculation. If France was to ban all uh, thermic uh, vehicle and say, well, from today or from tomorrow, uh, we uh, are going to allow only uh, uh, ice vehicle on uh, on the street to be sold, just not and keep the old one, but just the new one can only be uh, electric vehicle, then we will need one nuclear reactor to be uh, put in uh, production every two years. So, yeah, I mean, okay. th- 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 those are the things. And so, therefore, mm-hmm. you cannot go into saying, I want this, and then on the other side, not do the investment to generate more electricity uh, in the coming years but you're right we are going to face uh, a three i would say two to three years of hard difficult demand reduction because we didn't uh, forecast the uh what happened in terms of the weaponization of russian gas
2: yeah yeah well let's let's talk a little bit about that in terms of the preparation i mean looking back uh, France, Germany, and other EU countries such as Spain have taken different approaches in anticipation of the energy transition over the over the past decade or two. What are uh, uh, any insights that you could draw from this, especially in light of the current situation?
0: Well, in light of the current situation, as I as I stated, I mean the countries that were really smart in trying to address the diversification of supply are the ones that are much better off today. I mean. Uh, is uh, something that is uh, perhaps not uh, un- understood very well. I mean, Spain 20 years ago was highly dependent on Nigerian gas. And Spain has made the investment in loads of free gas terminal to reduce this uh, uh, the dependency. And Spain now is completely, um, uh, the security of supply in Spain is extremely uh, at a high level. As mm-hmm. I said, Poland has made this a gas terminal investment. Lithuania has made it also. So um, if you are planning this ahead, then you can do this and you have time to do this. Emergency is not a very good thing. I mean, on the other side of the coin, I mean, you see Germany, which was talking about regas terminal for the last 15 years, but was always uh, trying to uh, kick the can down the road because Germany was always saying, well, it's going to be more expensive than Russian gas true mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. the cost of lng is more expensive than the cost of russian gas but we are talking of prices and we are talking about a premium to ensure yourself against the risk so you shouldn't look at those just on a cost basis and yeah. as as we are speaking uh, germany has no Riga terminal is still thinking of building or fast tracking uh too new to be built but as i said germany is a systemic risk in europe because this wasn't done properly. So I think we need to look at this. And again, I mean, what we've always uh, banked on, which was a reduction of demand, which never happened. We also have to see how we want this to happen. And I think here, there is something different in this situation. Uh, We are at war, uh, not directly, but Mm -hmm. indirectly. And the war is not very far from where I, I speak, in fact. And so what we could say to our people is, well, we need this time, to really try to reduce demand as i was telling, uh, telling you earlier i mean we are going to face two or three tough years and so the thing is to say to uh, our people well let's try to reduce a uh, demand uh, today as fast as we can because otherwise if we don't do it uh, we are going to face demand destruction in the winter i.e we are going to close down plants or we are mm-hmm. going to be forced to reduce your heating at home. So I think there is an education process, and this education process, which was very difficult during peacetime, could be uh, Mm -hmm. done uh, during wartime, saying to people, well, this is because we don't win. We don't want to send money to Vladimir Putin to pay for his war in Ukraine.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I'm kind of looking at looking at comparisons between what's taking place in um, and, and, and the structures, really, in the EU uh, and Canada. And to a certain extent, the EU would, in many ways looks a lot like Canada, you know, with regional control of electricity, but then also with tight economic integration. So I'm wondering, do you see any specific challenges or, or any opportunities uh, that, that really result from this sort of mismatch between tight economic integration uh, and, uh, you know, sort of regional control uh, of electricity?
0: Well, I think one of the major success of the EU Commission in the last 10 years was to uh, put public money to build those interconnections, to make right. sure that those interconnections that were sometimes not uh, uh, profitable to, for those interconnections to be built. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, in the gas, for example, gas was flowing from east to west. We made the investment, I mean, public money made the investment for gas to flow from west to east. And this is mm-hmm. what's now helping Poland, what's helping uh, Ukraine to have uh, gas outside uh, the uh, Russian uh, hand. And, and I think this is very important. And if I, I would say, I think, and again, you've seen this, perhaps not in Canada, but you've seen this in Texas. If you're mm-hmm. not well connected, then uh, if you have a supply disruption, supply disruption can happen. I think mm-hmm. we, we are seeing the worst supply disruption because it's coming from what is now an enemy. But supply disruption can happen inside your own grid for whatever yeah. reason happens. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I speak, uh, I'm French. I mean, uh, we've seen half of, of our nuclear plant that are being um, uh, stopped because we have to uh, uh, check, check a few things inside those nuclear plants. And so this was not planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we are better interconnected with others, then we are more resilient. So I would say this, I, I think the resilience come with better interconnection.
2: How was the, uh, the European Union uh, able to, to get past the, the, those, those challenges uh, and invest public money uh, into, into projects that that were, that were transnational. That's, that's, that's always been the challenge here uh, is, is, you know, who pays for the, 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 you know, in the increased regional integration, because there's, you know, there, there isn't necessarily uh, the the same value for everybody along that chain. How did you get past uh, those, those challenges um, of, of, you know, individual States uh, views?
0: That's, Exactly what I was saying. This was the real challenge. And to overcome these challenges, uh, we uh, looked at the European level and stated that some projects were what we called project of common interest. And so therefore, uh, it was not only between two states, but there was a general uh, European interest. And so therefore, there were going to be some public money. And this public money helped. Uh, the uh, public money from the European side helped, because as you rightly stated, I mean, if you look at your cross-border adjustment, mm-hmm. and if you look at who wins and who loses, I mean, the one who loses doesn't want to pay for the one who wins. I mean, yeah. uh, there is a very famous pipe between uh, Spain and uh, France that never uh, took off, because we we never managed to uh, get through uh, those maths but yeah. if at the end of the day you get the uh, pipe or the line viewed as project of common interest and you mm-hmm. get some public uh, european support then this helps the system
2: it, yeah there 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 is a lot of commonality in, in those challenges between between the EU member states and, and, and provinces here. So that's, that's something that, that there might be some lessons that we can draw from there. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, and we haven't gotten, gotten to it yet, but um, intermittent sources of electricity. And there, there is significant penetration now of, of uh, intermittent power, in particular wind generation resources. What has this meant for the EU energy system and electricity markets, this growing growing use of, of intermittent resources within the system.
0: Yes. If I look at broad numbers, I mean, EU as a whole uh, relies for its electricity generation for 26% from its renewables. So that's uh, wind and solar. And then you add another another 12% for hydro. So that's, uh, and this is the average. So you would see yep. that in some states, it's, it's much more, it's uh, above 40%. So, I mean, two things. First of all, I think we have to keep in mind, and this is something uh, the uh, wind industry and the solar industry are not, I think, uh, too, too too much honest about this. We need to understand that this will create more volatility in the system, mm-hmm. more volatility in the system, which means if I, uh, and I used to sit in the bank next to the traders, which means more volatility in prices. And I think this is where, again, we or uh, all, all, all the uh, governments have to step in and to say, well, People don't like volatility, so how are we going to manage this in a way that is acceptable for the people? And, mm. and, and not, not only to the wealthy people that can have a battery in their, in their house or, or, or an electric car and so use the electric car or the battery to smooth the thing, but to others who don't have this opportunity. And I think uh, I used to be a civil servant back 20 years ago, and one of the big mistakes we made was uh, fuel poverty. Uh, we, we, we thought that fuel poverty wasn't going to happen because uh, this was dogma at the time. The dogma was liberalization, we reduced prices and fuel poverty would be eliminated. If you go mm-hmm. back to what the uh, British literature was about this in the 2000s, this was the exactly this. And I think what we need to understand is this volatility system is going to increase because um, policymakers are now blaming it on volatility of the gas prices. No, it's not volatility of the gas prices. I mean, the volatility of the electricity production that generates the volatility in the gas. So Mm -hmm. it's not because you're going to take off the gas that you're going to reduce the volatility. And again, people don't like volatility. So we have to find a way. And I think this is the real challenge today. How do policymakers make sure that they are trying to smoothing volatility for uh, the uh, final customers for the voters?
2: And and how how, how successful have they been up until now? And what's the prospect of being able to address that, that volatility, particularly for the end customer?
0: yeah, this, I mean, I think there was little success because the idea was to blame it on the fossil, uh, saying, well, it's the fossil uh, fuels that are volatile. I mean, yes, when there is no wind and no sun, you need more gas, and so therefore the price of gas goes up. On, on top of it, we are uh, facing a weaponization of gas, which doesn't make the system uh, uh, easier to understand. But, but I do think we have to look at it uh, in, in an integrated way perhaps with batteries, but again, I've always stated that the gas industry as such, and this is changing in, 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 in particular in Europe right now, uh, we, because we have in Europe quite a lot of gas storage, mm. the uh, storage can play the smoothing of this element. So right. we, we, we have to be able to, uh, to play it on different level and to provide those elements. Interestingly enough, I mean, we've seen uh, weaponization of gas, as I told you, and I think it started, by the way, a year ago when mm-hmm. uh, Gazprom didn't refill their own storage in Europe. Uh, because if we have full uh, storage, if our storage are full at the uh, beginning of winter, i.e. 90% full, then mm-hmm. we are in a position to have security of supply in Europe, and also to provide this security of supply to the broader world. I mean, it's normally an LNG cargo that has been uh, uh, reloaded in Europe that goes into Boston, if there is a problem in the US or goes Mm -hmm. into China, if there is a a problem in China uh, Mm -hmm. in plain winter. So it's because we had poor level of storage. Uh, Because of this weaponization of gas that we uh, faced extreme high prices at the end of last year, and we are in the process by changing the regulation uh, right now in Europe, Uh, the regulation in Europe is going to force uh, gas players to have 90% of the storage uh, completely full by. 1st of October. So therefore, this will be able perhaps to smooth volatility. So this is what I'm saying, you need to play on different level on different commodities, if you want to address something that customers are not happy with, which is volatility of prices, they don't like volatility of prices, they mm-hmm. don't like high price, which is something different. And high price, unfortunately, I think is something that is embedded with energy transition. We've also forgotten to say to our uh, to our people that they are going to have to pay higher prices on top of it we are facing a crisis which is making it even worse but the energy transition was going to be kick start with higher prices.
2: Mm-hmm. Let me pull on that thread uh, a little a little bit you know specifically you know what what the impacts are on customers. So we've talked about the different approaches in in in, in different countries in, in the EU what have the different approaches meant for the end consumers? right? I mean, there are different experiences, um, uh, it, ultimately for for consumers in different jurisdictions in the EU. And, and you know, what are the, the challenges or opportunities or, or any learnings that have come out of this?
0: Well, two, two things. First of all, there are customers that are willing to be pro-consumers uh, pro and so yeah. therefore are going to be able to balance the grid. But again, I think It's more the elite, it's more the wealthy, and and this is not the average person. And so therefore we have really to to keep this this in mind. Uh, Mm -hmm. Plus, we have to think about how do we do this? How do we provide this electricity? How do we provide uh, those uh, those, uh, gases to our people in a way that is acceptable to climate and to them? I mean, we, we are talking, for example, in Europe about a pricing CO2 uh, for um, a, a broader use of gas. Uh, right now, the CO2 is mostly paid by the power generation. Uh, mm-hmm. We would like policymakers would like this to be paid by people in their houses or uh, by people. Uh, uh, using oil for the car, it is something that is going to be difficult. And again, I'm coming from a country where we had the yellow vest when we increased too much of the, uh, the, yeah. the, the cost of the uh, commodity. So I think we, we, we have really to, I, I would say first, educate the people. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we have to tell them that uh, they need to consume less and unfortunately, it will cost more.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned yellow, the, the, the yellow vests and the experiences that that that, uh, that you saw specifically uh, specifically in, in France. What about the, the recent uh, French presidential election and the, the re-election of uh, President Macron? Are the results of the election uh, going to mean uh, any any changes for for French or EU energy policy, uh, or is it is it going to be uh, you know continuing along the same path?
0: Well, for for EU, remember that France was uh, leading the EU, the 27 member states, for the first six months of of the year. So this Mm -hmm. won't change. Um, The interesting thing is, perhaps on the geopolitical scene, as you've seen, there hasn't been any decision on an oil embargo uh, against Russia because we were going through a presidential election. And so, therefore, France couldn't really. push for this because we weren't aware who was going to win the election. And on a democratic process, you have to wait, I would say, mm-hmm. but for this. So France uh, wasn't, I would say, leading the EU in the last uh, few weeks, unfortunately. And and I think uh, President Macron will uh, go back as the leader of the EU on this. And again, he is now, uh, I would say, uh, the uh, the the natural leader for the uh, EU heads of states. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, In France, uh, well, uh, President Macron made a U-turn on nuclear uh, during his... First five years in office. He started by closing a nuclear plant yeah. and he ended up saying he wants to build 6 to 14 new uh, nuclear plants. Uh, the, the problem of this is uh, we have to go through uh, another election, which is the uh, MPs and uh, mm-hmm. uh, members of parliaments are going to be elected in June and we don't know exactly who's going to be elected. And mm-hmm. we have uh, part of the population that are even against uh, any uh, new nukes or wanting to close uh, the uh, nukes, as this was done in in Germany. And I think this goes back to uh, perhaps the the first question about uh, a crisis. I think we need a pragmatism in this system. Mm -hmm. I mean, we cannot go and say we want to go to a net zero uh, on on top of this if we are French and stating we are going to close our, new, our nukes our nukes, and not mm-hmm. build new nukes and build uh, more renewable because the amount of investment that's going to be needed to achieve this is just impossible. Yeah. So let's uh, use uh, the old nuke as, as long as they are safe. And again, right now, half of the nukes in France are closed because we need to address uh, a technical problem and hopefully this will be addressed and they can go back uh, uh, on the grid. But I would say that any leader that comes and that's a problem in Germany right now that says, well, in uh, this in the middle of the worst energy crisis we are witnessing in our mm-hmm. lifetime, uh, some leaders saying, I want to close uh, nukes uh, is completely stupid because we are going to lose supply and mm-hmm. lose supply without CO2. And again, I think We have to keep in mind, I mean, people are always talking about the risk of rare earth when you move to ice vehicle. Well, you need also to think about where you're going to produce this electricity because it it does use electricity. And and again, I mean, the the mass uh, 2 million um, uh, ice vehicle every year will mean that you will need half a nuclear plant every year to power those. And if you don't do this, to revert to uh, using coal-fired power plants, which is even worse than mm-hmm. having the uh, the diesel car. And again, I think that people are trying to understand this because one of the experiences we found out of this crisis, uh, if, if I can go back to my cars, is mm-hmm. that in, in Europe, in the last 10 years, we've pushed for dieselization of the cars. So moving from your uh, basic petrol to diesel. And this mm-hmm. was not only for mm-hmm. trucks, but for cars. And this has been uh, made massively because if you look, um, it was cheaper because there was less taxes and uh, you have more energy per unit of, of, of volume. So, I mean, it makes sense on one way or another, but Europe was contrary to North America, one of the uh, places uh, on earth where we had uh, the uh, uh, biggest amount of diesel cars, mm-hmm. the problem with this was that we didn't do dieselization in our refineries. So our refineries in Europe are producing too much petrol and not enough diesel. So the too much petrol is exported to the US or to North America. And how do we get the too little diesel? Well, we get it from Russia. So in fact, uh, if, and you've seen on the pump in North America in the US particular, diesel prices going uh, way higher than uh, petrol prices. Uh, because the uh, because in Europe right now if we have put an embargo on Russian oil and Russian oil product, it's mm-hmm. diesel that's going to be uh, missed in the system. So oh, right. interestingly enough uh, we uh, people that bought a diesel car back uh, two three four years because they were told it's going to be cheaper to operate have now a diesel that is 20 percent more on on wholesale prices than the price of normal gasoline. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so this is why I'm saying going, going back to the energy transition we were talking earlier, it needs to be planned and you need to be to plan the different moving parts because otherwise you're going to find yourself stuck in a position you wouldn't thought of.
2: We're going to take a pause here uh, and give us an opportunity now to, to turn to our live uh, audience uh, in Vancouver uh, and see what questions come up from the floor. Okay, and so uh, we'll have both uh, some roving microphones and an opportunity for folks um, that are participating uh, virtually to send questions uh, in. Uh, And I will actually kick things off, uh, just kick things off with a very quick question. Uh, for uh, for Dr. Boss, and that is a question that I ask everybody that comes on to the the, the Flux Capacitor podcast, and that's for a book recommendation to, to add to our uh, our Flux Capacitor book club to our reading list. Uh, so Thierry, for you, uh, is there a specific book that you would want to recommend to our audience here?
0: Yes, Francis. Hello to everybody. A great book that I read a, a few months ago, which is The World for Sale, which is a story about the traders those people that are making money, yes, uh, and this is the story about this from Jack Fasci and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and another journalist, but also why this is needed and why they were really successful in their 20th and 21st century.
2: Okay, the world for sale. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, questions either here in the live audience or uh, questions from our, uh, uh, our people participating virtually. Um, I was curious, I've heard, so as there's been an increased rely, reliance on uh, power in Europe, uh, you spoke of the energy security scenario with inner ties and all that. Um, I've actually heard that Scandinavian countries um, at one point were preventing power from rolling through their jurisdictions to other, other jurisdictions in order to kind of save prices um, domestically. Can you speak to that a little bit further? Is that situation kind of straightened itself out? And what are, what are the long-term implications if you can't rely upon, or the, the kind of security of your supplier in energy markets is, um, is able to basically be rescinded?
0: Yes, I think you're right. It goes back to the infrastructure and what I was uh, talking earlier about the need to have a resilient infrastructure. I mean, if if you look at Germany, for example, I mean, uh, some of the uh, uh, production now is going to be in the north. Some of the major demand is going to be in the south. And so because Germany, for example, doesn't want to build those uh, electricity lines, then the, the electrons are going through the other countries, which is putting a stress on the other grids. So I think we need the whole thing to be uh, better planned. And we need, as I stated earlier, to have some spec capacity and some resilience in the system. Uh, I I think now, I mean, the system about uh, electrons or gas not flowing to others hasn't been uh, a a big issue um, in in the last few months. But it could uh, become one in, in the gas industry. Because, as you know, there is a solidarity mechanism that uh, should kick in. And I was talking about the storage earlier. Just to give you the, the kind of scale we, we, we are facing right now in Europe, if we want to refill our uh, gas storage for next winter, i.e. in the next four months, we need to have a $100 billion, U.S. dollar, uh, to pay for this gas because the gas prices are so high. And then there is a question about who's are going to use this gas. Because at the end of the day, if we are facing a cutoff from uh, Russia um, um, later in the winter, then there may be some of the storage that has been paid by um, uh, Company A that is going to be used by Company B for residential in, in, in another country. So those are really tough questions that we need to address, and we need to address them in real time and in emergency. I mean, the solidarity mechanism in gas is on the paper, it has been written on the paper. I think I was uh, one of the father of of, of this back uh, 20 years ago, but it has never been tested. And and I think this is the uh, acid test, if I can say so.
2: Okay. I believe the next question is over here with Michael Cleland. Mike? Thanks, uh, Francis. Um, In in a sense, his question just follows from what what you just said, um, uh, Tidia. You know, we talk about gas as kind of gas going somewhere, um, but the question is, and it, and it has important policy implications, uh, what proportions go to power generation, order of magnitude, uh, and what proportions to uh, space heat or industrial process heat?
0: More or less, it's uh, broadly at Europe, it's a third, a third, a third. Uh, in, in, in France, it's completely different, but it's a third, a third, a third this uh, 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 right now. Uh, And and again, this could change uh, in the coming uh, months, because if we have uh, to do without uh, Russian gas, uh, we will have to face demand reduction of 10%. uh, And then there is the question, how do you do a demand reduction of 10%? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not going to be the residential, so it means that the two others will have to take the uh, biggest part of this 10% which means that uh, for uh, the power generation, it could be burning uh, more coal. So I think it's also very important to think of it, uh, Francis, you were mentioning, when you start uh, this energy transition, we have uh, new targets for 2030 and 2050, uh, 2050 targets are for net zero, 2030 targets may be, may be missed because unfortunately, a bit like uh, Texas in the freezing period, We may have to use whatever is left, uh, unfortunately means coal, uh, if we are facing a gas disruption, and I think uh, we could face this because since uh, the uh, uh, broadcast we had earlier this week, Francis, uh, the uh, European Commission did put uh, today uh, uh, a ban on an embargo on Russian oil and Russian gas that should be uh, looked by um, heads of states in the coming days. We need the unanimity to decide this, but at least now Russia knows that we want to get out of uh, Russian oil and oil products.
2: Okay. We'll squeeze in uh, two more questions. Uh, Mr. Kolasar will be the first of the two.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Do you think there's going to be any implications for uh, RED to the Renewable Energy Directive of the European Parliament? And Do you think they'll now be looking at potentially making changes to that? Well, there has been already one change that has been made by the Commission, which is the amount of biogas uh, in in the gas mix, and, and and goes back to what we are producing locally is better than what we are sourcing from outside. So uh, we are now, we have now a target of having 11% of our gas coming from biogas locally. So those things are are, are possible. What, what what I would say to Parliament and. Uh, What I would say to you is don't rush 2030 because it's going to be very, very difficult. We are facing, we are at war and we are facing a very difficult situation and uh, we have to make sure that once we go through this embargo process, as I was uh, alluding to you, uh, Francis, earlier, uh, we are going to see higher prices. And there is one thing we cannot do. Uh, we cannot decide an embargo then face some gilets jaunes and then turn back to vladimir putin and says sorry but we need the oil and the gas so we have to really plan this in a very systemic way and to try to avoid uh, any mistake in this and this is not a transition for greeners this is a transition just outside uh, energy from russia uh, last question Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bros. My name is Michael Hempel from Siemens, and I have a question regarding uh, the increased um, technology coming from electrification of transportation and how this could positively impact the um, grid expansion or also the uh, efficient use of uh, our resources. So, for example, with more electric cars, more electric buses, more electric uh, commercial trucks, uh, one could use the battery as a storage, mobile storage mechanism. Um, There are pilots in California to do this. What is your view on the future of using the mobile electricity from battery in cars? Thank you. I I, I think it's going back to the question I had with uh, Francis earlier. It's it's the consumer, how to make sure that those people that have uh, the electric cars, and I said, hi, it was an electric car in, 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 in the video, uh, are able to use it with the system to uh, uh, load the uh, uh, their battery when it's cheap and to unload when they don't need it or when the prices is high. And I think uh, this is very important because this is, I think it's important for two reasons. First of all, it's going to balance the grid easier. And secondly, it's a place where you can bring young engineer. And I think it's very important because we face a challenge of having young engineers going into this energy system and, and I do teach in, in, in different universities it's very difficult but if you go and ask them to work on those elements which are viewed as smart and they are smart which are viewed as modern then you may be in a position to have uh, bright engineers and to fast track this so I I, I think those elements are very important I think uh, uh, the uh, trading of CO2 is uh, uh, is now live in Europe. It, I mean, we've seen in the last two years uh, very uh, smart people coming. We've seen uh, Europe is at the forefront also of uh, uh, using satellite images to try to uh, check the methane leakage all over the place. So there are places where we can uh, really, I and mean, I say Europe, but it's, it's uh, Europe or North America, where we can really put Loads of new technology where young people are happy to help and to uh, join our industries. Much more than asking them to join for to produce electricity. Uh, A nuclear plant is not very popular. We will need to build. I mean, President Macron stated that he wants 6 to 14 to be built. But uh, believe me, it's going to be a huge uh, human resources uh, issue when we are going to do this. I mean, we didn't do this very successfully in the last four uh, nuclear plants in Europe.
2: I want to thank you uh, Thierry, Dr. Bross, for, for taking the time to, to join us, particularly for taking the time uh, to, to join us uh, for the uh, live Q&A, I think it's close to 11pm uh, where you are. Um, but uh, I, I do want to thank you for the earlier conversation as well, uh, for uh, providing your insights uh, you uh, helped us launch uh, our 2022 regulatory form in style. Uh, so please join me in thanking uh, Dr. Thierry Bos. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining this episode of The Flux Capacitor. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor, including World for Sale, recommended by Dr. Bruss on today's podcast. Please tune in for future episodes of The Flux Capacitor, including a conversation with the authors of the recent report, Net Zero, an International Review of Energy Delivery System Policy and Regulation for Canadian Energy Decision Makers by Monica Gattinger and Michael Cleland. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.